Choke points. Let's go. Brought to you by Acton's Quality Roofing. The road usage charge gets its first hearing in the legislature this afternoon. And Chris is here to remind us what it will do. The road usage charge or pay-by-mile system would change the way Washington collects money for our roads. It would eventually replace the gas, gas tax, which is no longer a stable and reliable way to pay for maintenance and preservation of our roads and bridges. It would charge drivers 2.5 cents for every mile driven. That's about what we pay per mile right now now under the gas tax. The bill being heard today would establish a voluntary road usage charge in 2025 with the goal of transitioning to a mandatory road usage charge by 2030. Sharon Nelson is on the oversight group that has been studying the road usage charge for more than a decade. I think it is really time to get on with it. I think we need to start making clear messaging to the Washington driving public that this is the future. And to do that, I think there's nothing like Passing legislation is the way to make it real to people. But will this be the year that the legislature adopts the idea? A similar road usage charge bill had a hearing last session, but it didn't go anywhere. So here's what's standing in the way. Basically, the same issues that opponents have been raising for that decade still haven't been settled. Like, how will the mileage be tracked? Will the money be dedicated to the roads or siphoned off to other non-road-related issues? What about privacy of the data collected? Really on a lot of specifics about those uh, issues in this legislation. Legislation. It starts with a simple odometer read when you re-register your car, but that has a problem on its face. What if you drive a lot of miles out of state or on your private property, say, when you register a truck and you work it on a farm and you <laughs> drive most of those miles on your farm, except when you drive to the store to get feed or whatever? Well, you'd end up paying 2.5 cents a mile on all of that, whether it was on Washington roads or not. Now, this bill asks that other tracking options be explored as alternatives, but that means putting a GPS tracker in your car and then giving that data to the state. Not a lot of love for that one. This bill does say it mandates that the money be earmarked for the roads, but there's no guarantee in this legislation. The only way to ensure that the money would go where it's supposed to is by protecting it under the 18th Amendment in the state constitution. So far, a bill to require that hasn't had a hearing. So the hearing is set for one thirty this afternoon. There is still time to sign up to testify and to hear what the pros and cons are this for yourself. I'm expecting a lot of action on this, but yeah, there's a there's a lot still up in the air on how this would be implemented, but this bill would kind of start us on that clock to 2025 and then eventually to 2030. So we'll see where it goes. Why not? If the idea is to is to capture the money not being paid by electric cars, why not just tax the charging stations for those electric cars? Uh, you know, again, that's another one of the ideas that you could do, but the, they they want to make sure that everybody pays the same amount. It's roughly equal for for everybody uh, because the road usage charge pays you for you, you charges you for what you're actually driving. So that's an interesting one, uh, point, but I hadn't heard that uh, being raised yet by the legislature. The um the and the bill that's up right now, this does not. This allows when you say it's voluntary. So who who would volunteer for this? Well, exactly. That's a question. You know, originally when the Washington State Transportation Commission put their recommendations, they said that they would like to start it volunteer and then with EVs starting into like 2027, so we could start getting this done and start seeing how it would work. But that was taken out of this legislation uh, for some reason and made it just voluntary in 2025, and then only a 2020 or sorry a 2030 you know date in the outset. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm not sure why that uh, didn't make it into the legislation. But you're right. Who's going to sign up for this? 
um, and, and how are they going to get their the data that they need? And of course, the, one of the biggest things we've talked about in all of this is the the GPS tracker. I mean, we all yeah. know that we have one in the car, but the question becomes, you know, do we want that data going to the state, and how will it be protected? Well, I thought there was a, some provision that says it gets destroyed after thirty days. Yeah, it, there are provisions in there, and there's obviously some language in there. But again, how many times have we heard of a data breach, or, or <laughs> we heard of things like that? And I'm not. And then also, then there's concern that if you allow GPS tracking for your mileage, where it might go in the future. If we're okay yes. with this, then next thing, are you getting something in your mail like, hey, you know, the other day when Sully, when you were on I five and you were driving a seventy nine on in a seventy mm-hmm. in eastern Washington, and here's a ticket for that. I actually, I, I kind of thought that was a nice feature, not a bug. <laughs> no, nothing against you, but uh, we've both seen the way people drive. That these is days. also very true. But then you know, does that then go to your insurance? Then does that go to well, this yes. and all of these things? So yes, people, it that, does. The uh, the solution is not to drive seventy nine. That is also very true. But what I'm getting at is that a lot of people do not like the idea of having that kind of information being given to the state, and that's a hurdle in this thing that even the legislators aren't really sure of on both sides of the aisle. That's why I mean they've been talking about this for a decade, and it's only had one hearing in one committee. That was last year, and then now it's having its second in that same House Transportation Committee. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of love, and there hasn't been a companion bill dropped yet in the Senate that I've been able to find. But when you point out that the gas tax isn't working, that's a real thing. Yeah, I that, mean, that, that's legit. And it's not just because of electric cars, it's because regular cars are getting much better mileage. So much gas mileage, yeah. And their revenue's going down. As far as I can tell, the freeways aren't getting any cheaper to build, so at some point they have to just stop uh, stop doing projects. Well, that, well, that it's not necessarily the projects that get hurt in this. It's the preservation and the maintenance. maintenance yeah. uh, I mean, I, as I said, I drove back I-90 yesterday, and the amount of potholes between, you know, say, Cleelum and up to the pass, it's ridiculous. I mean, it, it's, it makes the Ship Canal Bridge look freshly paved. Um, that's how bad Boy, it that's is. that's bad. Yeah, and so <laughs> the thing is, is in, when you hear Roger Millar, WashDOT's uh, chief, say they spend about half of what they need every year on maintenance and preservation. So, yeah, they, they've got to find a way to fund these things. Uh, and the ruck seems like a, a fair way to do it, but uh, it's got a lot of opposition. And now to the legislature. One of the biggest issues being decided this year, should police be able to chase a suspected car thief? Here's Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich. Matt, tell us about the latest on the police pursuits. Well, Dave, uh, welcome to Tuesday here, day 44 at the uh, state legislature of the 105-day session. Yes, and yesterday they had talked They talked about the pursuit bill again. Now, just to bring you up to speed, it had an 11th-hour compromise last week, and that compromise was immediately heard in this, What think about as a second round of voting on these bills, if it had anything to do with a, a financial aspect to it, or it passed out an earlier committee, they're now talking about that. So the legislature has turned a corner. Now, the police pursuit bill is basically what what the fix was, they modified the existing law that was passed in 2021 to allow an officer to conduct a vehicle pursuit if the officer has reasonable suspicion that a person in the vehicle was committing a crime of a violent offense, a sex offense, a vehicular assault, uh, an assault involving domestic violence, <clears throat> excuse me, and an escape or driving under the influence. Now, the 2020 law change was prompted by the general mood following the death of George Floyd. Now, some argue that the data 
wasn't there to back up that change. And that's a big aspect right now. But Democrats are arguing with Democrats now over the data backing up their various points of view. Uh, fewer people are dying in crashes, some say, because of the lack of pursuits. And there's data showing that crime is rising because the bad guys know the police won't pursue them. Now, Democratic Representative Deborah Antiman brought up the data dispute with the bill's prime sponsor, Democratic Representative Alicia Rule. You have a lot of correlations, but you don't have evidence of causation when it comes to the increase in criminal activity in vehicle pursuits. So I'd actually like to have some evidence of that. Well, the Washington State Patrol says that uh, people fleeing uh, their stops, on the average, it was about 1,200 per year for about eight years prior to uh, the changes in 2021. Last year, right after the changes, went from 1,200 to 3,100. Now, wow. Rule re- responded saying there just isn't enough data to support that number of lives are being saved because there's no pursuits. Well, the trouble is the sample size is so small that it's statistically insignificant. And it's difficult to be able to say whether it is significantly more dangerous with these pursuit laws in place. Then the two lawmakers went back and forth. These are two Democrats. So why do you believe that not being able to pursue people is a direct correlation to increased crime? I just don't. I don't see the correlation. I mean, I think we've seen example after example of people who've committed a crime and then run from the police. And one of those examples is basically the city of Federal Way, which saw car thefts jump 58% last year. So Jim Farrell, the mayor of Federal Way, asked a question that's on a lot of people's minds. Our primary concern is that the current bill does not include stolen vehicles or other property crimes. What we've seen in Federal Way and around the region is that people are committing robberies, burglaries, and other violent crime while in stolen cars. They do this to make sure that they can do so anonymously and get away without being identified. Almost every day I get a call from the police chief where he tells me a a robbery, a serious crime has occurred in almost every one of those crimes. The person arrived and fled the scene of those violent crimes in a stolen car. And that's a big issue right there. Yeah. Can you add stolen cars theft to this bill? And that was discussed. Uh, and finally, on this matter, uh, former Seattle City Council member uh, and president and mayoral candidate Lorena Gonzalez, a name we've heard uh, many times before. She's back working for the ACLU, and she had an interesting take on the on the bill. Cities and counties across the state had already restricted this police tactic, not because community members were asking for it, but because the risk managers were. Risk managers continue to be right. These are adrenaline-fueled chases where uninvolved drivers, walkers, and cyclists are most at risk of death. Well, that is interesting because it shows that if departments want to restrict it, they they can and have. But the the question is, why don't we trust them then instead of uh, prohibiting them in a case where they think it is safe and effective? Well, that's that's the, just the debate is going to keep on going right now, and it's yeah. a it is the soap opera so far of this legislative session is this one particular bill. It's got a, a huge focus on it. That's why I'm bringing it up. Yeah. And I thought Lorena Gonzalez's take that basically cities and counties, you know, those risk managers are paying out tens of millions of dollars when there's a lawsuit involving a police officer chasing somebody and it resulted in somebody's death. So um, there's that aspect there. All right. Let's talk about traffic cameras now. Yeah, traffic cameras. You now, this has been talked about, but this was actually the first time they actually had the hearing. You know, basically every 100 miles, they say there is a construction project. And so what they want to do is put traffic cameras in these construction zones uh, to catch speeders. Now, 
what kind of data is behind that? Well, they presented a study that was done in Pennsylvania that found if they, when they put speed cameras in construction zones, that basically get your license plate and you get a ticket just like a red light camera, uh, the speeds went down 7.8 miles per hour in this five year study they did in Pennsylvania. So that's a reduction of speed. Um, uh, and, but also it's a moneymaker. They're expecting this to make about $20 million, 6.6 million to do it. The net, Every year would be $14 million for the state. So there's that argument there. Um, Mark Otley is a construction worker who works on the highways. I've personally seen semi-trucks plow into our crews. It makes me sick to my stomach not knowing if I'm going to come home to my my children and wife at home every single day. And also about my crew members, if they're going to make it home every single day. So it's going to be real important that signage goes up, and that's what Captain Neil Weaver of the Washington State Patrol talked about. Education and signing would play a key role in this effort, so motorists will be fully aware they are entering a work zone with an active speed camera in use. But Jeff Pack took issue when the cameras would be operating. You're going to have these cameras running 24-7, even while road workers are not there. That's where this bill really falls flat on its face. No, I looked into the bill here. It doesn't really, it's, it's kind of vague on when they have to turn those cameras on or off. Uh, because everybody knows if you're driven through a work zone at night, those signs are still up. You have to drop down to 55 miles per hour. Clearly, the workers are not present. So there's going to be an issue about when you're going to turn these cameras on. But again, Dave, you know, the idea here is to cut back on the deaths that happened on the highway. 745 people died on, on road accidents last year. Uh, that's a huge number. And they want to cut that down for just basically the construction workers. That's obvious. But again, it's an Im- implementation of these red light cameras on whether they're uh, whether they're effective or not, or just a moneymaker for the state. Current News Radio's Matt Markovich. Matt, thank you. You're welcome. Time for your daily dose of kindness, brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. From meat packer to impromptu mechanic, a man steps up to help out a couple with a flat tire. On any given day, Anthony Fisher is preparing and packing meats at the new BJ's in Midlothian, Virginia. Last month, his job required another skill, as he tells NBC12. I took the initiative to ask, do you need some help? And they was like... Yeah, I can't fix my tire. Dim, uh, Jim, the, excuse me, Tim and GN Scalia attempted to get roadside assistance, but that wasn't working. That's when Fisher, who was on a break, came along and helped put on a spare. Then he pointed the couple to where they could get help. By the time they got to the tire bay, I had already told Sean they was coming. So when they came in, they was greeted and they was taken care of with quick and proficient Sure. The Scalia's wanted to reward Fisher for helping and reaching out to NBC 12. And we're going to tell everyone in Central Virginia what you did. And because you were so kind to them, we're going to give you $300 in cash and a $50 gift card to Mexico Restaurant. It's <laughs> a nice little surprise. And there was one more, a FaceTime conversation with the man Fisher thought he'd never see again. What's up, Tim? <laughs> Scalia says Fisher. Is a saint. In my religion, we have a, a Saint Anthony that, that uh, takes care of travelers, and, and uh, you know you pray to him for lost uh, uh, items and, and uh, even find your way home. So you are Saint Anthony that day. The recognition you receive is well deserved. Uh, you, you're a, a fine young man and extremely helpful. Not only Anthony, but all the employees that we that we uh, 
came in contact with were just terrific. Two strangers, now friends, brought together by a busted tire, held together by a simple act of kindness. Forty-seven. Now for the G and Ursula show, which starts at nine. Here is G Scott. So, yeah. do you want to talk uh, NBA? Yes, because the NFL season is—is it—is it over? The yeah. NFL season. Yes, yeah, the I NFL season is over. over. Yes, that's, that's what that's what mm-hmm. the Super Bowl was about. Yeah, that's what it. It marks the end of the <laughs> right. season. And the MLB season is about to start. Yes, right. This so training. Yep. we've wow. got the NBA. Yeah, uh, the NBA has a problem. There's a real, What's real the problem? problem. They have a brand problem. They have, in my opinion, I think the basketball players are the best that they've ever been as far as talent. Like, seriously, come on. Like, if you watch basketball in the 80s and 90s, they cannot compare to today's basketball player. You got six foot ten, seven foot tall, shooting threes. Like, they're, they're unbelievable. The problem is, is the blessing and the curse of who I believe is this generation's greatest player to ever play, LeBron James, mm-hmm. right? LeBron James is a blessing and a curse. He has been phenomenal. So great that he has broken the all-time leading scoring record by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. However, the curse is, is I'll give you an example that happened just here recently. LeBron James got a little dinged up. And so he missed the last three to four games for the Lakers going leading up to All-Star break, right? He was not available to play. But come All-Star game, he was available to play. And when I say available to play, before he got hurt in that game, he kind of messed up his finger trying to block a shot. Guys, he was really good. Like, yeah. I'm looking at LeBron play. I'm like, wait a minute. You don't look like he was that injured. <laughs> so where am I going with this? Where? Because... There's a lot of families. Let's just say, Colleen, you and a family, LeBron James and the Lakers, oh my goodness, we're going to circle that on the calendar. Yeah. We're going to go down to Portland, drive down to go see LeBron. That's going to be that's gonna be great. You go down there, and LeBron's not playing. But LeBron does play in the All-Star game. I see. And so this isn't just LeBron. This is a lot of these NBA stars that are doing the, quote, load management. They're not playing so the So they're becoming season. prima donnas, huh? I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to call them prima donnas. I'm going to say that the NBA needs to fi- fix this problem. The first thing they need to do is go less games, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of having the 82 games, 82 games, 82 games, go down some because these players are going to advocate for themselves by saying, you know what? I don't have to play 82 games. I'm going to go ahead and play like 50 something games. Yeah, it's like taking and, PTO, right? Yeah. So instead of my career being 10 years. I can go 15, and so so is that. Yeah. But at the same time, this does not help the fan experience, right. right? Now, another problem the NBA has is every single season, most of you watch the NBA, you know there's only about three, maybe four teams that have a chance to win the NBA championship. How about NFL? NFL, every single year, you're like, huh, yeah. everybody's got a chance. Doesn't the NBA have a parity system like the NFL does? No, not at all. Know. Not even close. The problem is, and, and again, the NBA, the players in their last CBA, they really did a good job. Of, they have guaranteed contracts, right? Mm-hmm. And so the guaranteed contracts for them, it's good for them. 
But for the fan, this is struggling. And so if everybody wants to want to know, man, why is everybody's always focused on the NFL? The NFL Combine, where it's just shorts and a T-shirt, Colleen. Yeah, I've seen it. Gets more ratings than an NBA playoff game. So you're saying it's not uh, worth bringing a team back to Seattle? Is that no, 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 I, no, no, no. I'm not saying oh, that. Okay. No, I'm not saying that at all. I would assume 32 because I'm same thinking I'm thinking 32 NFL. NFL but I, I was thinking, if, what if you had more teams and less games? So then you have more of a chance to see yeah. a game, right. but you have less games, so right. the players aren't going to take time off. It's it's just more it money because be, they won't cut back on games. It'll mean a cut in profits. The NBA won't do that. What they have to do is they have to expand. The NFL has 17. 17 17 games. Uh You know what I mean? So I I don't know. Again, the slam dunk contest, which something if you're if you're if you guys are NBA or you used to watch NBA, you probably can say, oh, yeah, I remember when Michael Jordan was in the dunk Mm -hmm. contest and Dominique Wilkins and Spud Webbs. And so the dunk contest, you remember when Sean Kemp was in it? You remember when Kobe Bryant was in it? Vince Carter today. I'm not I'm not saying that the dunkers aren't good because they are. They're just but not the stars. They're not the stars. Yeah. LeBron James, year 20. Guess how many slam dunk contests he's been in? Zero. Do you think it's because they're worth so much money now? Not to say, you know, Michael Jordan didn't make off with great money, but not like today's players. And they're not going to risk doing like a fun dunking contest if they're worth millions. Well, compared to the time, yeah. those guys were making a, a whole lot of money. Okay. Like to make $3 million in a season in the late 80s was wow. That yeah. was a lot of money back then. Mm. All I'm saying is, is the NFL and what we are blessed with is when we go to a game, most of the time, barring injury, the stars are going to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Imagine going to a game. You can only afford one game and you go there, not injury, but because I'm tired. <laughs> I want to I want to take this game off. Yeah. And if NBA got a problem. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. But and you still want to see them here. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Seattle's Morning News. This is Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. And Cairo News Radio's Kate Stone joins us now. There's a question that's been it's been around for years. Where and how do you house violent sex offenders in Washington state? And Kate, there's a lot of anger, but also confusion and misunderstanding regarding these laws. So can you explain this to us? Recently, we've heard a lot about the situations in Tenino and Enumclaw specifically, and I've covered both of those and state lawmakers are obviously taking notice of the outrage in the community. There are currently five bills in the legislature currently regarding sex offender housing. The latest was House Bill 1813, which was introduced last Thursday by Republicans in Mason County, and it would place a moratorium on housing sex offenders in local neighborhoods after the outcry from communities in the past several weeks. But it's also opening a window into how much we do or don't know about this housing. It's uh, called Less Restrictive Housing Alternatives, or LRAs. Here's the thing. Releasing sex offenders into local communities in Washington is not a new concept. It's actually been happening for about 30 years. Washington became the first state in the U.S. to pass a civil commitment law in 1990. What that means is after a sex offender finishes their prison sentence, a prosecutor can petition the court to civilly commit them as a sexually violent predator. Then they get moved to the secure commitment facility 
on McNeil Island, and they stay there indefinitely. And that facility is run by the State Department of Social and Health Services. But the sex offenders can't stay there forever. It's a treatment center and not a prison. And DSHS spokesperson Tyler Hemstreet told me. Keep in mind, they're no longer serving a correctional sentence with the Department of Corrections. They paid their time in the Department of Corrections. And when they're civilly committed, we as a state have to give them a constitutional way out if we're requiring treatment we have to give them a constitutional way out and by doing that that is how they can they can discharge to a less restrictive alternative and eventually for some unconditional release back into the community so by that logic the house bill 1813 that was introduced last thursday would actually be unconstitutional and would likely face immediate lawsuits if it were to pass because it actually blocks a path back to the community and violates the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause, as well as multiple Supreme Court rulings. And like I said, there's been a lot of confusion about this. There's a lot of reports out there that the state or Democrats in the legislature have started releasing these offenders from McNeil recently. And that's that's not true. This has been happening the whole time. I got data from the state from the last five years Every year, around 25 to 35 sex offenders have been relocated from McNeil to community-based LRAs. It just hasn't gotten this much attention before. And the state officials I talked to were actually really caught off guard by this. And there's also a misunderstanding about the annual review process, where residents on McNeil get annual mental health reviews to determine if they're eligible for release. That's not new either. That's been happening since civil commitment began. It sounds like the Tenino issue when they were going to open sort of a halfway house in that community and they start. That's what brought all this back into the forefront. And I appreciate the background on that, that a lot of these issues aren't new. It's the outrage uh, over this case that's new. So maybe it sounds like the desires of the community are changing that, you know, while we do have a longstanding policy to allow a pathway to somewhat freedom for sex offenders, maybe the communities are saying, no, we really don't want this anymore. We've tried it. Don't like it. Unless the U.S. Constitution changes, there's not much we could do about that unless we pass a law that makes committing a sex offense a lifetime prison sentence. Mm. Because under the Equal Protection Clause and under the U.S. Supreme Court rulings and also Washington State Supreme Court rulings, we have to give them a path back to living free, like unconditional Mm -hmm. release, actually. But this less restrictive alternative is kind of a middle ground between that because they have tons of conditions that they have to follow. They have to wear an ankle monitor at all times. They're not allowed to leave without chaperones, those types of conditions. I see. So it's not like they're living in a house and they can come and go as they please. They just are under monitor by the state. They they can't go anywhere without telling somebody. Well, yes. However, they are living in homes and, and the, a lot of the frustration is coming from like you look at the situation in Enumclaw, they are living in homes that are kind of unsecured in mm. a lot of ways. Mm. A lot of sex offenders have the same requirements, you know, chaperones, ankle monitors, that kind of stuff. But the actual locations where they're living, there's not a lot of requirements. The requirements in the state law books right now is that it must be more than 500 feet from a school or child care facility. But as far as where they can be, who can run them, et cetera, ah. 
there's not a lot of guidance there. There was a 2021 law that passed, and that's that's why these they're showing up in these communities is because it established a fair share principle. So what that said is for every sex offender you have on McNeil Island, you have to have an equal number of housing options in that county for the number of sex offenders from that county. So, for example, in Tonino or in Thurston County, there are 11 residents currently on McNeil. So Thurston County has to have 11 housing spots, essentially, LRA housing spots. And the Tonino facility is just one of them. It can hold up to five. So mm-hmm. they're, they're actually going to be more. Well, if there are 25 to 35 offenders relocated, uh, what, every year, why are these two suddenly in the news all the time? Again, I think it's a lot because of this 2021 law. The fair share principle has to do with the fact that a lot of these sex offenders were being sent to eastern Washington. They Mm -hmm. were being sent to Pierce County. And those locations, the local leaders said, hey, we don't want all of these people. You need to take some of these people to your counties. And that's what's made it difficult. The DSHS is the only one that has to follow this kind of housing option, fair share, equal spreading of the housing options rule, the courts can choose wherever they want. They can put the sex offenders wherever they want. The courts are the ones with the ultimate decision-making power in this situation. Has there, has there been a spate of reoffending by these people while they're living in their less restrictive housing? I asked the communications director of the Department of Corrections, Christopher Wright, if they've ever had a reoffense. In the three decades we've had less restrictive alternatives in place, no residents ever been charged with a with a sexual assault. Zero. Zero. Nobody. Nobody has ever been charged with a One did take off their ankle monitor, but they literally just walked to a sidewalk and was sitting down and was pretty much found immediately. And another one was found with possession of child pornography, mm-hmm. but they've never committed an offense. That's an offense. Child pornography is an offense. Even a violation like that, they don't get sent back to McNeil. They should. They get sent back to prison. Guard News Radio's Kate Stone. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. 8.48. And now here she is, Mickey Gomez, because there's a, there seems to be a consensus that Americans are just stressed out. Mm Mm-hmm. Everybody in this country is just at their wits end. I know Colleen's at her wits end. Always. Just always I'm about starting to, to teeter over way. the edge. <laughs> I'm starting to feel that way. Heather Long with the Washington Post wrote an opinion piece about Americans in burnout. And I think she's on to something. And what uh, what she says is because of COVID, inflation prices, supply chain issues, social media, quiet quitting, job burnout, child care, child care, Lord knows what else. Taking a sabbatical might be the answer to finding some kind of work-life balance, Mm -hmm. maybe even peace of mind to recharge. And uh, Long says in this article that's, again, in the Washington Post that starting about January of 2022, about 6% of employees started to take sabbaticals. Uh, She also says it's more women than men who are taking them. How long are they? They're about four to six weeks. Although if you ask Europeans... 
They're about six months. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> An American break from work is a lot shorter, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And people from different backgrounds are starting to take them. The restaurant industry uh, workers are taking them, uh, social services workers, uh, bank employees. Um, so, but before you take a sabbatical, you know, you need to have a discussion with your with your HR person. You also need to have a, a discussion with your partner and make sure you've got enough money to pay the bills. Um, financial services experts say you should have about six months worth of savings in your account before you decide to take How a How willing are employees to grant this kind of thing? Um, a, lot of, a lot of companies out there are becoming more hip to the idea because they don't want turnover rates. They want their employees to be happy. Um, you know, happy wife, happy life. Well, same thing with, with work, you know, if you consider yourself married to your job. So, uh, yeah. yeah. I certainly used to. And I, almost two years ago in July, I took a month break and I was so scared. I was what so scared to take a break. I think because when, you know, and I've been working since I was 15 and a half, ever since I could, and, mm-hmm. and been working at this career since I was 19. And I think you worry that when you take a break, you're going to lose your edge. And especially in, in news with this breakneck yes. speed of our news cycle, you go, you know, will I still be able to keep up? And I have to say it was the best thing I ever did. For I myself a, and for my career. I, I believe it. And I think it is good. I took a four year sabbatical after my mom died. Yeah, I did. I had to. Had you planned on that long? I had not planned on that long. Um, the company and I, uh, the company was going in a different direction. Uh, and they asked me to stay on until they were going to go in that direction. I said, sure. Um, and I got a severance uh, for a little while. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I didn't go back. I, di- I didn't go back when they asked well, how, to rehire me. How did you support yourself? Really? Well, I'm married and my wife supported us. Yeah. And so I had my children and being at home, we were able to save money because I was able to cook and clean yeah. and uh, no, provide the provide, child care, provide the child care. So um, four years. And then I decided when we moved to Seattle, it was time to come back to work because I wanted to, not because we needed to. Uh, but the thing that I was worried about and the reason why I asked what were you scared of is your fears were the exact same as mine. Mm-hmm. Was I going to lose my edge? Did I lose my edge? Uh, I came back into the workforce, um, recharged, re-energized, um, excited, a little bit of insecurity because what am I doing? Yeah. But um, Have you ever taken a break, Dave? You've yeah. been here, what, 45 no. years? You've never taken longer I mean, than like, what, two weeks vacation? I took three weeks once. <gasps> three weeks? Yeah. Did that feel weird? Uh, Yeah. 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 Do you think it's generational? One of the reasons why? Because your generation, uh, you work, I, work, work. I, I think it's weird. It's different, though, taking a vacation like a plant versus yeah. I'm taking an absolute mental break from my life. So for some reason, but. I have I have always wanted to be in the center of the action. Mm-hmm. I, I just I, I like having things popping all around. Uh, when things get stressed, uh, you know, I get moving. I, I know for, for some reason that's just the way uh, that's the way I've been. It, it probably has has taken a toll. I don't know. I, I I'd be interested in knowing if I can ask when you decided to go back into the workforce. How mm-hmm. old were you? When I decided to go back, when did I, I go back. W- w- uh, that, well, that was last year. I was fifty. Oh. Well, yikes! So the, <laughs> yeah. see, because to me, that's I think that's what scares people. If I take a break, nobody's going to rehire me. I'll be I honest; I felt that way. Yeah. I did feel that way uh, going through the interviewing process. And Sully was someone who interviewed me as well. Uh, I was I was nervous. I was rusty to say the least. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I knew that I wanted to come back, and I knew that I wanted to have fun again. And I said, I'm going to have fun this time around. Did you say why you took your break? I did because you know women always have to talk about too about the the break that they take if they need to provide child care right and i had to explain my my four-year break in work and i said i took care of my mom 
when uh, when she was mm-hmm. ill, and yeah. then I was there when she passed. And then, you know, to be in radio and to do what we do, you have to concentrate. You, you, sometimes you have to be happy, and I just couldn't be those things. And so when I severed ties with the last company, I just didn't go back. But here's the thing. Companies today, companies like, let's say, Fred Hutch, who my wife works for, UW Fred Hutch, they allow their employees, some of their providers, not all of their employees, um, two months off a year. Oh, that's so nice. And so my wife's year, uh, my wife's um, month off is coming up in March. So she Mm -hmm. will be off for an entire month. So a lot of companies out there are becoming more savvy, more hip to this idea that, hey, we need to give our employees off more time. Is that a paid month off? It is a paid, uh, trust me, I asked. I'm like, like, are we getting a paycheck this month? And she goes, yes, we are. So don't forget there's FMLA. So there's a lot of options. You don't just have to have, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in savings. There are ways to medically take a break from work if you need it. Very true. But, and I love that, uh, that, that companies are becoming more more, um, more hip to this idea that, hey, burnout is real. Mm-hmm. So We work hard. We do. We also need to rest hard. What about you, Sully? You're quiet over there. I've never taken more, two weeks off. Get out of town. Ever. <laughs> so there you Don't. go. Yeah. Well, I'm not gunning for your job, so take two weeks off. <laughs> he can't now. He's a supervisor. Oh. Yeah, yeah, that and I can work. only take one a day at a time to go to go Tommy's football games. Funny. It's what's management that took me over the edge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Fortunately, my team team is really good. It includes Mickey, so there's not a lot of stress in my managing. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.